The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the market outlook for 2024 and top geopolitical trends. We will look ahead at inflation, economic growth, international markets, and more, plus artificial intelligence, biotech, and other trends to watch. That's with our guest, Ron Temple from Lazard. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. Rusty, what are you watching for at the moment? Well, to timestamp this interview, we are recording in the latter part of January, and we have a decent start to the month and for the year, at least for the TV benchmarks. Large cap growth stocks are leading the way early, just like they did in 2023. Question is, can this performance continue? And related to that question, when will diversified portfolios start to outperform on a risk-adjusted basis again? When will small caps outperform again? Non-US stocks, when will bonds generate positive three-year returns again? Today's guest is one of the industry's leading investment firms with a history going back over 175 years. Will help us think about possible answers to these questions. All right, let's bring him in. Ron Temple is Chief Marketing Strategist at Lazard in New York. Ron, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here, Ron. Of course, our first question is probably the most difficult. What is your walk-up song for today's interview? Uh, my walk-up song for today's interview is Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. We have Stevie Nick fans in the audience. They love Fleetwood Matt songs, so nice choice. <laughs> right, let's talk about you for a little bit. So you've been in the position of chief market strategist at Lazard for just over a year now. And before that, you managed U.S. equity and multi-asset investing for Lazard Asset Management for 22 years. Yep. Tell us more about your career and your latest role at Lazard. Yeah, so basically been in the financial industry for over 30 years now. I started off um, in the capital markets area and trading and sales, foreign exchange, fixed income. Um, worked my way through roles at a regional bank in Boston and Bank of America in San Francisco. And then the, kind of the big change in the career path was joining Deutsche Bank uh, in London in 1996, uh, there for a couple of years, then a year in Singapore, and then moved to New York in 1999, ultimately joining the asset management business at the end of my time at Deutsche. And in 2001, I joined Lazard and joined to cover financial services. We have history of hiring people out of industry or having industry experts or specialists. And so my intention was to be covering banks and brokerage stocks for the rest of my career. But over time, that evolved and started looking at more macro factors. After all, if you're assessing a bank, you basically have to have a view on yield curves. You have to have a view on credit cycle. So a lot of macro factors come into play. And over the last 22 years, rolled through a few different positions of co-director of global research, also as a portfolio manager on U.S. and global strategies. And as you mentioned before, before changing into this chief market strategist role, I was overseeing our U.S. equity business and our multi-asset business and part of our global equity business. So, so it's been a really interesting ride. It's a great firm. And uh, I've really appreciated the flexibility and the ability to evolve my career interest. You're also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, the Economic Club of New York, the CFA Society of New York. 
How do some of those outside roles influence your perspective and the work that you do at Lazard? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, in an investing role, I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to identify the most useful and interesting sources of insight. And I think the Council on Foreign Relations has given me great access to certain key decision makers, whether it be on monetary policy or in foreign policy. And it's interesting, by the way, if you look back, say, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, if you think back to the Cold War era of the US and the Soviet Union, you know, we all cared about geopolitics. We talked about geopolitics. But from a corporate and an investing perspective, there wasn't really a lot of economic connectivity between the Soviet Union and the West. If you look at the amount of trade we had between the US and Soviet Union, it was less per year than we currently trade with China in a day. So when you look at something like the Council on Foreign Relations, it's really helpful to gain that extra insight related to geopolitics and to be able to kind of factor that into how you think about security selection and asset allocation. And and frankly, it dovetails really well with Lazard as a geopolitical advisory business, um, which is comprised of about 15 to 20 people with some pretty heavy hitters in terms of the geopolitical space, retired people from the CIA and the military. So being able to basically access their insights and perspectives can be very valuable in terms of thinking about potential scenarios and risk you might encounter in your portfolio, and also, I should say, opportunities. Well, Ron, we do want to spend some time on your global outlook for 2024, which was published recently. But first, for advisors and clients looking at their year-end reports, what is your guidance on how to consider 2023? What were some of the key highlights of last year? And how should investors consider their portfolio performance given 2023's market performance? Yeah, it's um, 2023 might be one of those years where you wish you could have just um, gone to sleep at the beginning there and woke up at the end and you would have had a lot less nausea from the ride because if you really look at what markets did, there, there was quite a bit of volatility between the beginning and the end of the year. I mean, the bond market in particular, you had you know some pretty significant losses as of October that entirely reversed in many cases by the end of the year. But in the equity market, I think there's a really interesting story. You know, I looked back and I kept track of this through the year. As of the middle of November, the entire increase of the S&P 500 was literally 10 stocks. And by the end of the year, that had broadened out a lot. So you know, what I would suggest for people is number one, part of your portfolio assessment is, you know, how much of your uh, positioning was active versus indexed? How exposed were you to growth? These kind of decisions made a big difference. How much exposure you had to non-US versus US equities, again, were critical drivers of your relative returns or your absolute returns. But I do think perhaps it's more interesting to zoom back out and look at the last two years. If you go from the end of 2021 to the end of 2023, the S&P is up 3%, and the PE multiple is down two multiple points. But again, you've had a lot of movement beneath the surface there, um, where the entirety of the earnings increase in the S&P 500 was about seven stocks. So it's been an incredibly unusual period of time in terms of narrowness of the market for much of that period, elevated volatility in terms of the large drawdown in 2022, and then the recovery in 2023. But I think we're actually at a really interesting starting point for 2024 in terms of looking forward and the opportunity to add some serious value through security selection and portfolios. All right, let's talk about inflation. What is your outlook on inflation and how will that impact both short and long-term interest rates? Yeah, so I'm, I'm more optimistic. Well, if you went back a year or two ago, I, I doubt I would have ever imagined saying what I'm about to say, which is disinflation or the decline in inflation has happened way faster than I thought it would. I mean, we've gone from over 9% headline inflation in the US to closer to 3%. I carefully watch the core CPI run rate 
And for the last seven months, we've been annualizing out at just below 3% on core CPI. So we've made a lot of progress already. And I think over the next six months, we're going to see core inflation at a run rate below 2.5%. And we should be approaching that two, two and a quarter by the end of the year. And, and the reason I have confidence in making that statement is you can really divide core CPI into three prime categories. Number one is core goods. So these are all the physical things you buy other than food and energy. Now, core goods prices have been going down for the last seven months. So we actually have core goods deflation. And that largely reflects the fact that during the pandemic, we had semiconductor shortages, we had supply chain issues, the cost of new cars went through the roof. And when people could not get new cars, they paid up for used cars. And so what we're seeing now is the kind of drifting back downward of new car prices and used car prices towards something more reasonable. And I think that will continue through much of the year. So for 26% of the core CPI index, which is core goods, you'll see negative inflation. The biggest component of core CPIs is shelter. So it's basically rent. And that's 44% of the core CPI basket. That peaked out at an 8% year-on-year run, run rate in terms of inflation. On a monthly basis, at one point, we were at 80 basis points a month. So again, you annualize that, you're at almost 10%. That metric is cut, cut by half. We're down to 40 basis points per month on rent inflation. And based on data from Zillow, the Zillow Observed Rent Index, we can see that over the next six to 12 months, we should probably see that rent inflation fall by half again. Um, and again, the key data point there, or key things to know about the Zillow Index, number one, it only tracks asking rents, not what people agree to pay. So it tends to overstate rent inflation. And number two, it only tracks new leases. It does not include renewals. So it probably overstates the volatility of rent inflation because it's the current market snapshot, not if you're a great tenant who's lived there 10 years. And number three, because of those factors, it tends to lead the CPI by a year. We know that the Zillow index went from 16% inflation in February of 2022 to 3% as of December of 2023. So again, we know shelter is decelerating. That leaves the last 30% of the basket, which is services excluding rent. And that part of the, the index is now increasing at a 4% year-on-year pace. Um, the most recent months have been running at around 35 to 40 basis points a month. That's the big wild card in terms of the outlook for inflation. That's the one that's harder to predict. In theory, service inflation should be driven by labor markets. Because if you think about it, when you get your haircut, when you go to the you know dentist, you go to the bank, the biggest cost is labor. But the reason I emphasized in theory is for the last three months, the biggest driver of service inflation has been auto insurance. And that, again, goes back to those higher car prices. So if you are an insurance company like an Allstate Progressive Geico, if someone has an accident totals their car, the cost to them is much higher than it had been, say, five, 10 years ago, and the cost of repairs has gone up. So the insurance companies are always trying to catch up, you might say. And so I think that will be a bit more difficult one to forecast. But given what I see in the labor market, I think you're going to see this deceleration of inflation continue. The good news there is as inflation slows down, that gives the Fed the latitude to cut rates, even without a recession. And so I'm quite optimistic that we will see rate cuts starting at the May 1st Fed meeting with about 100 basis point reduction in Fed funds rates by the end of the year. I'm less optimistic than the market on that count, by the way. The market is saying 130 basis points. It was saying 150 a week or two ago. I don't think that would be justified without a much slower economic growth story. But I think this is effectively what I've been calling an immaculate disinflation. I hear you on the car insurance, by the way. I'm currently shopping for auto insurance, and where do those premiums go up? I may have a teenager on my policy. That may be a factor. I think that might be. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yep. So looking ahead to 2024, recession fears seem to be fading. 
What's your current thinking about economic growth? Yeah, I, I think the probability of recession is actually quite low. And just give people a sense, historically, since World War II, the U.S. has a recession on average every, say, six to eight years. So you could think of any year as a 12 to 15% chance of recession. I think in 2024, maybe it's a 20% chance. I mean, so above normal, but not that much above normal. And, and to give you a sense of where the market is, back in October, the consensus for 2024 real GDP growth in the U.S. was 50 basis points. As of today, it's 130 basis points. So the economists who are forecasted or, or surveyed by Bloomberg uh, are gradually becoming more optimistic. And, and I tend to be in that pack. I mean, I would note, I believe the IMF might be forecasting U.S. growth of closer to 2%. You know, one or two of the bulge bracket investment banks are saying above 2%. That's kind of the optimistic outlier. But bottom line is, I think the U.S. will have decent growth this year. Um, and so it's a pretty positive story. The big thing I'm watching to know if I'm wrong about this is the labor market. And part of why I said it's an immaculate disinflation is so far, the U.S. economy is still firing on all cylinders. I mean, public opinion polls might say otherwise. I think that's partly scar tissue from the inflation we dealt with over the last three to four years. But if you look at the labor market, the U.S. created 226,000 jobs per month last year. We need about 130,000 jobs to keep the unemployment rate stable. Unemployment's at 3.7%. The 54-year low is 3.4%. So we're basically at full employment. And if we look at metrics like the number of unfilled jobs per unemployed worker, um, we are seeing easing of tightness in the labor market there. We were at two unfilled jobs per unemployed worker. We're now down to 1.4. So that's probably showing you signs that the Fed tightening is slowing things down. And then one last anecdote, um, the percentage of people who quit their job every month has declined from 3% a month about two years ago to 2.2%. So we're now back down to pre-pandemic levels. And one last anecdote that I think is really interesting that I watch um, in terms of signs of easing in the labor market, which again should allow the Fed to start taking its foot off the brake, um, is Bank of America aggregates and anonymizes the data of their deposit account customers. And they track to see when your direct deposit changes to a new employer. And what they found is a deceleration of changes to new employers across all age groups in the last year. But more importantly, what they found a year ago is when people did change jobs, when the direct deposit changed, on average, they were getting an 18% pay increase. This year, they're getting about a 10.8% pay increase. So I piece all that together and say, you've still got a strong labor market producing more than enough jobs, but for the Fed, it's not so hot that they need to keep raising rates and risk rising, you know, increasing the risk of recession. So, so I think, again, this looks more like a Goldilocks scenario. And the other issue I should note, the big risk factors that had been lingering in people's minds, like commercial real estate and the other kind of credit risk, also go down when the Fed starts cutting rates. So overall, I'm feeling increasingly optimistic about the near-term outlook for the US economy. Yeah. So Ron, first of all, it's fascinating about the paycheck data. So, uh, but how does their expectations and economic growth, how are they going to impact corporate earnings in 2024? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really important, by the way. I'm glad you brought up this question because it's easy for people to get caught up in thinking, well, if the economy is growing at 1.5% versus 2%, I should do X, Y, or Z with my equity portfolio or my bond portfolio. The reality is profitability of companies can be quite disconnected from GDP levels. Um, you know, Great case in point, by the way, is if you look at Chinese GDP growth over the last 30 years, China has grown like a weed, but corporate profits have not in China. Um, so you, you know, there is a relationship, but it can be quite tenuous in some cases. In the case in the United States, 
consensus for S&P earnings for 2024 is 10% growth. I think that's probably a little too optimistic. I mean, even if the economy does grow 1.5%, which is below potential, most economists would say potential growth in the US is one and three quarter, 2%. You know, so it's a little weaker than we would like to see economic growth because of all that tightening from the Fed in the last two years. But I do think you could expect earnings growth from the S&P of maybe 5 to 8%. But what's perhaps more interesting to me than that headline number is I think the geography of the earnings growth is going to move around. I think you're going to see a broader base of earnings growth, and you're going to see some of the companies that were hit hard by rising interest rates start to get some relief as we move through the year as interest rates go down and their debt servicing burdens go down. In particular, I'd say, for example, the small cap part of the market would benefit from that. Well, let's talk small caps since you brought it up. So when you look at various valuation metrics and particularly relative valuations, small caps are on sale and they have been for a while. What will be the catalyst for small cap stocks to finally outperform? Well, yeah, it's a, the small cap space is one that I've been uh, basically recommending that people consider over the last few months and in large part because of interest rates. So if I just use the Russell 2000 index as a representative sample of small cap and then compare it to the S&P 500 being large cap, the Russell 2000 companies um, have twice the debt to cap of the large cap companies. So they're more exposed to debt. And more importantly, 45% of that debt is floating rate, whereas for the S&P 500, only 9% is floating rate. So if you think about it as the Fed ratcheted rates higher these small cap companies saw their interest expense go up, which decrease, decreases their earnings per share. As the Fed starts to ease, you should see, should see a benefit on the margin. But, but very importantly, one of my concerns with small cap is 40% of the companies in the Russell 2000 index lose money. And so you got to be really careful about what you own. I would not recommend owning the index because there are going to be a lot of companies in that index that might not make it through this period of higher interest rates. My view on Fed policy, by the way, is they cut 100 basis points this year, they cut another 100 basis points next year, and that might be the end of the music cycle. I don't think rates are going back to zero. And so for these companies, if they've taken on too much debt when interest rates were at zero, they might have a hard time. So I think you want to have a quality bias in the small cap market. And then the last piece of the story really is around valuation, where as you mentioned, historically, small cap stocks traded at a premium to large cap stocks They've been at a significant discount for the last few years, which again, I think creates an opportunity. So can I put my finger on a single catalyst? No. I mean, maybe the interest rate reductions are part of the catalyst. I mean, I guess the other logic I would apply here, 90% of Russell 2000 earnings or revenue are in the United States. For the S&P 500, nearly 40% of the revenue is outside the United States. When I look globally, the US is the strongest major economy in the world at this point. I want more domestic exposure. I want that exposure to decreasing interest rates being a tailwind. So I think that makes small cap more attractive than they have been in quite a while. Yeah, well, you just raised another question here. So you're talking about the domestic market and domestic economy. Let's talk about non-US. And that's another area that's underperformed for a while. How should investors be thinking about investing in non-US markets? Kind of a two-part question here. How should they be thinking about developed markets such as Europe and Japan? And then how about emerging markets, particularly like China's? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I was just talking with some colleagues earlier today about looking at emerging markets, for example, versus the US. And over the 16 years ended 2023, the total return per annum of emerging markets, if you just bought the MSCI Emerging Market Index, was 1.1% per annum. The S&P 500 gave you 9.4% per annum over that same period of time. So basically, the US has crushed pretty much every other market 
And part of that, you know, has been the technology story of the last few years where we've seen you know, the excitement most recently on AI, but before that it was the cloud, before that other factors. When I look going forward, I'm still bullish on the US market. I do think the US market can continue to perform, but it really needs to be driven by earnings growth, not PE multiple expansion. When I look outside the US, where I get most optimistic right now is emerging market equities. Um, if I look at the EM equities, I've got a number of positive uh, dominoes or ducks in a row here. Number one, the macro gap in terms of growth in emerging markets relative to growth in developed markets is widening out in favor of emerging markets. Now, part of that's a negative story because European growth this year is likely to be well below 1%. Japan might be 1%. The US might be 1.5%. If you look at EM with or without China, it's materially higher in terms of the growth rate. That's a positive for EM stocks. If your economy is growing faster, your revenue growth is likely to be faster. But number two, what we found is in emerging markets outside of China and outside of a couple other countries like Argentina, we've seen returns on capital for companies going up across these EMs over the last two to three years. Historically, in our analysis, when companies improve their returns on capital, the share prices tend to outperform. And then number three, two more to go. Number three, I think geopolitics are a positive here. And if you think about it, a lot of companies now are trying to figure out how to de-risk in terms of their exposure to China. And in fact, in the third quarter of 2023, for the first time in decades, we saw negative foreign direct investment into China, meaning money was pulled out of China, not put in. And what's important to know about that stat, by the way, is that statistic includes any profit generated in China by a foreign company as if it was a foreign direct investment. So the fact that that number went negative means not only are companies not putting in, they're taking out every penny of their earning and then some. Well, where's that money going? It's not coming back to the US in my view. Some of it will come back in the tech sector for strategically important areas, but a lot of it's going to other emerging markets where either labor might be even cheaper than China, because by the way, keep in mind, Chinese wages went up double digits for decades now. Indian wages are a lot cheaper. Wages in Mexico are a lot cheaper than parts of coastal China. So I think you got winners like India, Mexico, Vietnam, Thailand. We can name a long list. And so that's exciting to me because you're going to see incremental growth and more capital investment that raises their growth rates. And then last but not least, S&P 500 is at 20 and a half times forward earnings. The MSCI Emerging Market Index is at 12 times forward earnings. So you're getting a massive valuation discount and you've got these positive catalysts. So I think that's probably a good story. And one other non-US market I would highlight that I'm more interested in on a tactical basis is Japan, Japanese equities. I mean, if I look at Japan, yet again, there are a number of kind of stories lining up here, but the most important one is the governance reforms at the Tokyo Stock Exchange. At the beginning of 2023, the TSC announced that any company listed on the prime part of the market, they have a prime and a standard. Prime has higher disclosure requirements and basically is more prestigious. Any company listed on the prime listing had to comply with requirement that if their shares were trading below book value, they need to announce a capital management plan to resolve that problem, to raise the valuation of their stock. Last week, the TSC released the list of all of the companies that have actually done what they were supposed to do or are in the process of doing it. It was half the companies. Now, what's interesting to me is the other half are going to be under a lot of pressure because at some point they might be forced to delist from the stock exchange or get kicked to the lower, the less uh, preferred level of listing. And in Japan, as you might know, that's a matter of losing face. It's a humiliating exercise if you get derated. So you're going to see more and more companies returning more capital to, to, to their investors, um, improving returns on equity, 
And I think that is positive for growth in Japan. It's positive for the companies. One other thing that TSC announced last week, which I think is also important, is that by 2025, companies in that prime listing also have to release key financial information simultaneously in Japanese and English. And the goal of this is to make sure non-Japanese investors have an even playing field and can be fully engaged with Japanese companies, which adds to my enthusiasm about capital management, because the more you have Americans and Europeans and other foreigners investing in Japanese companies, the more pressure there will be to raise returns on capital. And again, historically, higher returns on capital lead to higher share prices and share price valuation. And one last thing, on the macro side, Japan is the only country in the world left with incredibly accommodative monetary policy. The BOJ is still at negative 10 basis points on overnight rates. And I do think they will continue to be accommodative, even if they basically take rates to zero. It will be a positive backdrop in terms of monetary policy for the Japanese equity market in 2024. And considering your outlook overall, what do you think are some of the major risks to it? Well, I, I'm saying there, there are a couple of major risks. One is elections. I mean, most people have probably seen that over half the world's adults will be voting in elections this year. If we're really honest, that makes for a fun newspaper article. But I don't know about you. I'm pretty sure I know who's going to win the election in Russia. Um, you know, if you look at other economies like India, it's highly likely Modi will win re-election. So, so in many cases, you will have continuity of leadership. But I do think the U.S. election is a very important election, primarily from the geopolitical perspective. Because there were very big differences between the two presumptive nominees. And I say presumptive because we don't necessarily know that they will be the candidates. But there are big policy differences vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine in particular that could really change the direction of global geopolitical risk. Interestingly, in the U.S. election, the actual fiscal policy differences are not as big as I think some people might believe. Corporate tax cuts in 2017 are effectively permanent. Biden has proposed in his 2025 budget taking corporate tax rates halfway back up to where they were. So when Trump was president, they lowered corporate tax rates from a 35% statutory rate to 21%. That raised S&P 500 earnings by 10%. Now, keep in mind, it was a one-time step change, right? It did not change the long-term growth rate. But that is a 10% lift to earnings, and that was a benefit to the stock market. The probability of Biden being being able to pass a corporate tax increase to 28%, I think is relatively low. So on corporate taxes, I'm assuming no change to either way with either of the primary leading candidates. Personal tax rates are a little different. The tax cut to 2017 had a sunset provision for personal income taxes such that all personal income taxes would go up at December 31st of 2025. President Biden has pledged not to raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. And in fact, in his 2025 budget, he proposed raising taxes on people making over $450,000. So $450,000, an extra $50,000 there, presumably to accommodate inflation since he came into office. So if you think about who that applies to, $450,000 of income is the top 1% of income earners in the US. The impact of that tax increase would reduce the deficit $30 billion a year. So with Biden, 99% of people get their tax cuts extended in all likelihood. With Trump, 100% get their tax cuts extended. It's not a big delta in terms of the deficit. Arguably, by the way, I think we need to figure out how to raise a lot more money than $30 billion. We're running $2 trillion deficits, which is unsustainable. But that's the biggest fiscal policy difference between the two of them. And by the way, I would just note under either outcome, I think US deficits are likely to continue to exceed 6% of GDP each year. Just a reminder for those of you who took macroeconomics in college, if your interest 
is accumulating faster than your income grows, whether you're a person or a company or a country, you've got a debt problem. Well, right now, the US is adding 6% to our debt every year and our income is growing 4% every year in nominal GDP terms. That's a problem. So we really need to solve this and it's going to have to be bipartisan. So there, I don't see tons of daylight between the two. And then the last economic topic there is really on trade, where Trump has said he would impose a 10% tax on every import into the United States um, if he's president again. That might make it harder for the Fed to cut interest rates because that's inflationary and it could create disruption for companies in terms of supply chains, especially if you start effectively what could be a trade war. So economically, it's not as big of a deal, but the geopolitics of the US might decide to stop funding Ukraine. The signal that sends to Putin, I think, is very dangerous. And I think the signal it sends to allies about the reliability of the United States is very dangerous as well. And ultimately, those two factors matter most in terms of the signal it sends to Xi Jinping about Taiwan. So I do think this is a year where the geopolitics are really important. I know the average American does not wake up every day fretting over whether NATO is going to be fine, but you know what? Maybe we should be because these things do determine the long-term trajectory of peace and stability. And I think that matters. Other than that, I apologize for this long answer. The geopolitics in the Middle East are a huge risk. I mean, what we see happening, you know, the October 7th massacre, the terrorist attack was horrific and inexcusable. But what we've seen since then in terms of the war in Gaza, and it seems to me what I'm seeing is a slow motion expansion and escalation of this war. We have regular interaction across the border with Lebanon between Hezbollah and, Le and, and Israel. We've obviously seen the U.S. has now attacked Houthi positions in Yemen. I believe it's eight times and counting. Um, with the UK joining us a couple of those times. I worry that if this conflict expands and openly, formally includes Iran, it becomes an entirely different economic story. 20% of the world's oil passes through the Straits of Hormuz every day. If Iran is actively involved in a conflict with Israel and the United States, it's a highly likely scenario that you sharply curtail the amount of oil getting through those straits. And you could easily see oil prices as, oil prices skyrocket, as could other energy prices. And so I think that's probably the one we should be watching most carefully in terms of the geopolitical risk right now, alongside the ongoing humanitarian tragedy and war in Ukraine. And sorry, we could go through a long list of other factors, but I should note, you know, the thing people have been worried about through much of 2023, commercial real estate is still a risk. You got a lot of office buildings in Manhattan, but not to mention every other city in the country where people are not sitting in seats in those buildings on given days of the week. There are going to be losses on commercial real estate, specifically office properties. But when I look at that, the scale and the magnitude of the impact on the economy is a lot smaller than the risk of an expansion of a Middle East conflict. But maybe I'll pause there in case you want to go down a different path in this regard. So just staying on some of those geopolitical issues for a second, you, you published a report recently called Top Geopolitical Trends in 2024. Um, can you walk us through some of the highlights of that report? Yeah, I mean, I did, there are a number of things, basically. We And again, we this is available on Lazard's website for anyone who's interested in looking at it. We basically tried to go through 10 key geopolitical topics for this year. And we've already talked a little bit about one of them is the world chooses, you know, basically the, the over 50% of the adults voting so I think we've covered that. There are a number of other countries I didn't cover there, like Mexico has an election, Indonesia has an election, the EU parliament. The US election is another key thing to watch because of the geopolitical implications. One third one that I think is probably you know relatively known, but worth reiterating, is the China slowdown. 
I mean, the Chinese government reported an official GDP growth of 5.2%, 5. sorry, 5.2. The expectation was 5.3 for 2023. I personally don't believe that number is accurate. And, you know, we, one, one source I like to look at is Rhodium Group, which does a lot of China-specific work. Their estimate is that Chinese GDP growth might have really been 1.5% in 2023. And the reason I find that number more credible than the official 5.2 is somewhere between 15 to 30% of the Chinese GDP is housing. And by the way, the reason it's so wide, 15% is if you just count the construction itself. 30% is if you count the bank loans, the servicing, everything that goes with real estate in total. So bottom line, let's just split it down the middle and say 22.5% of your GDP is real estate. That part of the economy, according to the government's own statistics, shrank 10% last year. Now, if 22% of your economy is shrinking 10%, take two and a quarter percent off your GDP growth, I can't find any other part of the economy that offset that decline in growth to somehow get us miraculously to 5.2. So I think the China slowdown is much deeper and more structural than many people realize. And by the way, just to give you a few other anecdotes, that housing issue has led to out of the top 100 real estate developers in China, 85% of the private developers are now in default and 15% of the state-owned developers are in default. And this is a vicious downward spiral because the more developers default, the fewer people are willing to buy a new home. They're afraid won't get delivered. And so you've seen consumer confidence go down in China. And why has that gone down? For the median household in China, over 60% of their assets are their house. And what we're seeing from basically um, channel checks in, in China is that home prices in tier one cities, these are the biggest four cities in the secondary market, meaning previously occupied homes, are down as much as 15 to 20%. So I think China has a real economic problem on its hands. And we're seeing more and more speculation. We've seen a lot of stimulus measures that have been drip, you know, kind of bite-sized stimulus measures. The rumor even today was that China might come in with a 2 trillion renminbi stock purchasing program to try to prop up the equity market. I do think we need to watch China carefully. I think we will see stimulus to try to put a floor under growth, but this slowing growth does have meaningful implications for how China engages with the world and the risk of, frankly, social unrest in China. Those would be the ones I would highlight. There's one other one, not to be, you know, I feel like I'm very negative here, but one other one I would highlight that is a left tail story is the risk of, of growing um, of resurgent global terrorism. You know, again, the longer this Israeli-Hamas conflict goes on in Gaza, the more you can see sympathies rising for Hamas and for the Gazan people in certain parts of the Middle East and around the world. And so I mean, we do worry, this was one of the key forecasts, I think that was unexpected from this trends report, was that there could be a greater risk of terrorism. And I think, frankly, the US and our allies need to be keenly aware of that. And hopefully city, state, and federal governments are coordinating to try to preempt any such issues. But we you know, all need to be careful about, as we've all seen, if you see something, say something, this might become more front of mind over the next year, unfortunately. Well, Ron, I have one more question regarding that report, top geopolitical trends in 2024. We'll have show notes to that. But just thinking about that resource you have, your geopolitical advisory and the fact that you've been on the Council of Foreign Relations, I can only imagine the high quality business dinner conversations you've had, probably a little bit different than what Robin and I have, probably. <laughs> but anyway, so the question I have is, this might be a positive twist in your geopolitical trends, and that is on artificial intelligence and biotech. As you listed as a top trend in 2024, those have been topics on our podcast in the recent past. 
How do you think investors should be thinking about these technologies? Yeah, and we've also issued a report on artificial intelligence. Again, it's on our website if people want to look at that. I think artificial intelligence is is it's, it's incredibly complicated, and it is an arms race, literally and figuratively, in terms of who can basically develop AI fast enough. And I think it could change the nature of of warfare in the future, and and that's what's kind of frightening about it to me is. If you're a country that is able to develop artificial intelligence that can take the human out of the military process and basically can basically respond to a stimulus faster than any human could, in theory, that should give you an advantage on the battlefield. But it also means there's no human judgment in that process to evaluate if that stimulus or if that data you saw is really what it, what it seemed to be. And I do worry that in the case of the United States and China, we're both working as rapidly as we can to figure out how to advance artificial intelligence in ways that can be used in a national security context. And this is part of why the US has imposed so many restrictions in terms of outbound CFIUS, outbound investment into China, and the ability of China to buy sophisticated IT equipment is to try to basically prevent China from gaining a strategic advantage in military equipment. And I should note, you know, one example where they do appear to have gained a strategic advantage is hypersonic weapons. And so we should be under no illusion that, you know, the U.S. has an amazing military and military capabilities, but you have to constantly keep, you know, fighting and struggling to stay at the lead on these. And so I think AI is going to continue to be a, a source of tension. It's a source of huge opportunity, by the way, in the real economy. I mean, been, make no mistake, I think AI could be transformational in terms of productivity in the service sector primarily. But you know, from a geopolitical national security perspective, um, I tend to think a lot about the national security part. On biotech, what I think is interesting is you're likely to see this year some significant restrictions on U.S. Um, on the ability of American investors to invest in Chinese biotech, and in particular, the concern in the U.S. government is dual use or military applications of biotechnology research. And again, if you think about it, the U.S. for many years now has tried to protect. American data about individuals from foreign exposure. And so, you know, we've tried to restrict Chinese access to information about users of social media, for example, in multiple different forums. And so part of the reason for that is if you imagine if a foreign government, let's say an adversary, were to be able to collect all of your medical information and identify my medical vulnerabilities in yours with advances in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and biotech, could you weaponize diseases or viruses? And obviously, we had um, you know, a lot of negative experience during the pandemic of people speculating about the origins of COVID-19. But imagine if you really could weaponize that easily and deploy it into a population. And so I think biotech is going to be the next arena. And as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has talked about, the US tried to build a small yard high fence in terms of preventing certain technology to flow to China. I think the yard's going to get bigger this year and the fence is going to get higher. And you're going to see, at least under a Biden administration, a lot of effort to coordinate that with allies in Europe and in Japan, because let's be honest, we're not the only ones who have high technology to export. The Koreans have it, Taiwan has it, the Netherlands have it, Japan has it. So we need to make sure that we're collaborating with allies. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. Very good stuff. Okay, well, let's turn now to some questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on The Weighing Machine. And the first is, what is currently your favorite investment idea? Um, well, there are always good investment ideas. So I, I guess when I look at the, the market right now, I mean, I'm going to speak in broad terms. 
I am I am more positive on equities over debt. Yes, we just had a big rally in equities, but when I look at fixed income instruments, I know it might be tempting to people to keep your money in cash because you're getting five percent on a T bill or in an overnight money market account. But let's be honest, by the end of the year, that rate's likely to be lower. So if you keep sitting on that cash, you're going to be watching your reinvestment rates of return decline through the year. So I'd be moving money out of cash over time. I don't think you want to do it all in one day. I'm not excited about extending duration. If I look at a 10-year US Treasury bond, a 4.1% yield, I don't think that's very appealing because I do believe even though inflation is going to come down quite quickly in 2024, I do have a view on a structural basis that inflation of 2.5% might be the new norm over the next decade, in which case 4.1% isn't a great return. Um, you should probably be getting paid more than that. And that all leads me to like equities over fixed income and cash. It also leads me to like certain income producing real assets. Within equities, I do like small cap, but I would quality bias there. I think you want to engage this actively, not passively. And within the, the global equity markets, I'm still positive on US equities. But I think, again, the broadening out of the market opportunity says to me, maybe the Magnificent Seven aren't the only place you can make money in 2024. Actively engaging the equity market through a manager who's willing to take real benchmark risk could be an opportunity. I favor high quality stocks because there is still risk out there in the markets. All these geopolitical things we've talked about are still risk. So I think being in quality is a good place and being in small cap with a quality bias is a good place. And then when I mentioned income producing real assets, um, I do think infrastructure, either listed or unlisted, is a great place to be because if you have structurally higher inflation, you get inflation protection from infrastructure assets. And this is a world that's going to need to invest a lot more money in infrastructure over the years ahead. I think you're going to get some really good returns on capital there. So you asked for my best idea and I gave you five, but hopefully that's <laughs> people can go on a shopping list and decide what they agree with. Those are all really tasty things. So, so obviously, Ron, you have a lot of energy. So our next question we always ask everybody is, how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to perform at a high level in this demanding industry? Yeah, I think a lot of people have different ways to do this. I mean, to me, it's, you know, on the physical side, actually, I've, I've learned to be a very good multitasker on an elliptical or a Peloton. I'm always reading when I'm on either cardio machine, and I try to do that six days a week, 40, 40 to 60 minutes a day. So you get a lot of time to read, but also, you know, you need to work out that energy and stay healthy physically. And then I also try to get myself away from the financial sector. I mean, you know, you could, this can be an all-absorbing job, but you become a, become a really boring person if you just do nothing but look at markets and investments and macroeconomics. Um, so trying to find ways to completely distract yourself, escape, whether it be, you know, binge watching some kind of television series. Um, or reading not you know, reading a completely fictional book. I tend to find myself not wanting to go pick up Graham and Dodd and read that for the eighth time. I'd rather read something that has nothing to do with economics. And then let's be honest, the reality of what I do is most of my reading really is the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Economist, trying to filter through massive amounts of information, um, not to mention, by the way, some of these specialty research groups I've mentioned and our own geopolitical groups work to try to kind of glean the insight that's differentiated. And so somehow get your exercise, read what you need to read for the job, and then periodically check out of the job and actually have a social life that keeps you a well-rounded human. Thinking about your career, you've been around a lot of successful people who have helped you get to where you are today. Who are some of those mentors, colleagues, and people in your life that you're thankful for? Yeah, it's probably not the answer you expect, but the first person I immediately think of is the elementary school teacher who changed the trajectory of my life by getting me into a number of different programs 
and I would not be where I am today were it not for her. So um, sadly, she's passed away. But you know, I think anyone who has children, uh, thank your teachers because you know what we ask of them is pretty incredible, and what they sacrifice to deliver for our kids is pretty incredible. And so that would be first and foremost. And I think you know beyond that, it's it's hard to put my finger on like any one individual. I've been really blessed over time to always have you know I I don't know that I've ever had an official formal mentor, but I've always had the informal mentors who just gave me really good guide good guidance. At Lazard, I've had that since I joined. Always had good guidance from peers and you know even managers prior to Lazard in every role. Um, and so you know it's I've been very blessed in that regard, but. Without naming individual names, it's it's a long list of people, and you know I, I'm glad you asked the question because I think it's important for us to always step back and think about who made it possible to be here. You know, other than your parents and your teachers and your family, and I am deeply appreciative. And this maybe is one of the hallmarks of Lazard as a firm. That's one of the positives. You know, in, in our asset management business, there are about 1,100 people globally in the entire firm. It's around 3,000. It's it's interesting. It's big enough that you get all the resources you need, but it's small enough that it still feels like a family. Um, and so, you know, I've also been very fortunate to be in a firm like this one where where mentorship and collaboration are so important. Well, I love that answer. So even just this past weekend, this is honest, this is really the truth. I was just telling my wife how important my grade school teachers were, particularly this one. And so it's so funny you should say that. So I do agree with that. So one thing I want to drill down a little bit more on, because I'd be fascinated by your answer. You did talk about some of the periodicals you like to read, but what else are you reading, listening to, or watching at the moment? Any other recommendations for our listeners? Gonna have to think about that one. I mean, basically, what I find myself reading a lot of that, you know, honestly, I, I can tell you the TV shows I'm watching, but they're not going to make you a better investor. I guess when I think about the research I read is is pretty dry material. I mean, over the holidays, I spent a lot of time pouring through Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation documents. Yeah, I was a really fun person to talk to at Christmas <laughs> so, because I'm really focused on the debt deficits and debt. And I do think this is this is maybe one of those tail risks we didn't dig into a lot. But, you know, if you look back to the fall of 2022, when the UK introduced their budget, I mean, a lot of people call it the Liz Trust moment, where basically the, the deficit was going to be bigger than expected and the bond market literally fell out of bed. I worry that we might not see the bond issues and the debt issues creep up on us, and then we might have some kind of shock. And just to give you a sense, by the way, in any given month this year, in 2024, there might be up to $500 billion of treasury sales in a single month on a gross basis between refinancing old debt and issuing new debt. It's easy for things to go wrong in that environment. So I've been really trying to pour through that. And I would encourage people, I mean, arm yourself with data and expertise because you know, it's easy for politicians to come out and say, well, I would just cut spending and I'll solve the deficit. You know, I would love to see a politician tell me exactly what he or she is going to cut because they won't get elected the minute they tell you they're going to cut what you like. And by the way, you know, no politician wants to go out and say, I'm going to raise your taxes because they're not going to get elected. But the reality is we all have to start being adults in the room and realize you can't spend more than you make every year for the rest of time without having consequences. So, so sorry, that was a really horrible answer to a very straightforward question. Um, I mean, the last one I'll tell you, the last book I was reading and I thought was really intriguing, just to give you a, a book, was called An Immense World. And I thought it was a really great book. It's about, basically, it's an, a, a writer for The Atlantic who did a tremendous amount of research on different animals. And I'm losing the German word he used for their kind of their atmosphere in which they live. And it was really intriguing because we as humans tend to think, well, we got our, you know, 
our senses of taste, hearing, smell, etc. But animals actually have incredibly refined senses that we can't even come close to meeting. And so, for example, I remember for bats, they literally screech, I don't remember, it was hundreds of times per second, basically for the radar or the sonar effect to work. But every time they screech, their ears close so that they don't damage their own hearing. So it's like incredible things like that or the sensitivity of dog smell. You read this book and you really start to think about our own capabilities in a very different way and understanding how limited we are versus some of the other species we live around. So maybe that's one where you can get your head out of the finance area and economics area, really transport yourself. Awesome. We'll have it in the show notes. Thanks, Ryan. All right, Ron, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to have you. And before you go, tell us how can our listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Lazard. Yeah, so for anyone who wants to follow what I'm doing, we do publish a we I publish a weekly newsletter that's a really brief one called Behind the Headlines. Um, you can basically see that we typically post it on LinkedIn. So easiest thing to do is follow me on LinkedIn or and or follow Lazard. And I also do put out periodically. Well, I do a year ahead outlook and a mid year outlook that are more formal pieces. But probably the easiest thing to do is just follow on LinkedIn, and we'll try to keep you uh, up to date on that on that social media net site. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your time today. I feel like this podcast interview was definitely a full course meal in terms of content. So again, appreciate your time today and uh, we'd love to have you back on sometime. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. That's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to Weighing Machine. And if you liked this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion. First, we have Weighing the Risk podcast, which I host monthly on behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence. This is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top of my concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance. It's New York Times best-selling author Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. For more, including commentary, videos, and other great content, please check out the website orion.com. Go to the resources drop-down menu and find me, plus a wealth of content I create just for you under Thought Leaders. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanman and our podcast guests are solely their own opinions, and they don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.